beginning Parshas uh, Kairach, we're going to begin the Halachas of Gilei Said. The Halachas of Gilei Said are the Halachas that it's forbidden to reveal someone else's secret. Gilei Said, uncovering someone else's secret. These Halachas are part of the general obligation of Lashon Hara and Rechilus, a general ob- Isra to say things which you're not allowed to talk about. And it's its own individual obligation as well not to reveal a secret, even if that secret isn't necessarily a detrimental information, even if it doesn't fit into the, the usual qualifications of Lashon Har and Rechilus, you still are not permitted to reveal someone else's secret. Now, the main source for the prohibition to disclose confidential information comes from a halacha regarding Dayanim, judges in a dintaira. The Gemara says that if someone has a dintaira and you go in front of a bezin, now a bezin has three people, and you have the two litigants, and they argue, and then the three Dayanim sit together and confer and decide what the halacha should be. And we go with the majority. So if two people rule one way and one rules the other way, so we go with the majority, and that's the halacha. Now, after the din is over, understandably, the one who is ruled against is not going to be very happy. So he meets one of the dayanim on the street, and he's notably upset. So the dayan might be inclined to tell him, and this is, even if it's true, the dayan might say, you should know, that I really sided with you, but I was overruled. So the Gemara says it's usr. The dying, the judge, is forbidden to say that, although it's true. And there's no Lashon Hara involved. There's nothing, I mean, that's the way Halacha works. They pass in that way, I pass in this way. Uh, there's nothing detrimental about the other Dayanam, the fact that that was the conclusion they reached. But nevertheless, he is revealing confidential information. The ruling occurred confidentially between the three of them, and he is forbidden to reveal that information unless they give him permission to. But without permission, it's a secret, and there's an Israel Gilead site. So this is the source of the concept of Gilead site. Now, if you just think about this particular application of a Dayan, essentially this exact situation is replicated very often any time you have a meeting whether it's a shul meeting, a school meeting, or a business meeting. When a meeting occurs between whatever, however many participants who are invited to the meeting, by definition, the understanding is, is that information stays in the meeting. Whoever was invited is entitled to that information, and whoever was not invited, who is not part of the company, part of the shul board, part of the school board, etc., is not entitled to that information. And revealing details of the meeting without permission of the people responsible or in charge is gilisite. And the same, and again, the exact same uh, uh, application would be when there was a meeting about some topic, let's say, uh, you know, schools or schools, etc. And there was a vote, and the vote went whichever way it went, and we went with the majority. It would be forbidden for one of the members to then go and say that to other people that you should know, I voted this way. Well, what could I do? I was overruled. That would also be Gili side. It would be exactly this halacha. Another place where this obligation of confidentiality is mentioned is the Gemara and Masechtis Yuma. The Gemara says, how do we know that unless someone expressly allows you to reveal information he's telling you, it's prohibited to reveal it. In other words, the Gemara is taking this Isser of, of Gilu side a step further. That any time a person tells you something which 
ostensibly that information may be private. It may be. Even if he didn't tell you specifically, don't tell anybody. He didn't say, this is just keep this between you and me. Even if he didn't tell you that. He just told you information, which is there is a possibility that he wants it kept private. You are not allowed to reveal that information until he expressly allows you to. How do we know that? How do we know that that's the way it works? That you need a special permission to, to be able to reveal information? So the Gemara learns it for none other than HaKadosh Baruch Hu himself. HaKadosh Baruch Hu talks to Moshe Rabbeinu. And every time he told the mitzvah to Moshe Rabbeinu, he said, Vaydabra Hashem el Moshe, Lamar. Hashem spoke to Moshe, Lamar, to say it over to the rest of Kal Yisrael. Why does that have to be repeated hundreds of times in the Torah? Who knows how many times it says, Vayim Hashem el Moshe, Lamar, Vaydabra Hashem el Moshe, Lamar, Vaydabra el Kim el Moshe, Lamar. Keeps on saying, Lamar, to say, to say, to say. The reason is because unless HaKadosh Baruch Hu expressly told Maisha that you can go and say this, he was not able to say it. It would have been Gilu Said. So this is the source, another source, where we learn another, an, an extra level of understanding in the Allah of Gilu Said is that anything that is possible to, that there would be a reason why it should be kept secret is assumed that it needs to be kept secret unless the person expressly allows you to tell it to other people, or you can ask him. But you would need uh, clear permission from the person to be able to say it over, and it's learned from none other than HaKadosh Baruch HaMashu which is why Hashem had to say Lamar every single opportunity, every single time he told Moshe Rabbeinu HaLacha. The Pasuk in Mishlei says, Hoylech Rachil Megala Said. Hoylech Rachil, someone who uh, goes around spreading Rachilus, Megalicide is what a person who's saying secrets is. And the way Mishle works is it's making a comparison, making a muscle. That spreading someone else's secret, telling someone else's private information is equivalent as saying Lashon Hara about them. It's just as bad as giving over uh, um, detrimental information about that other person. Now, there are a number of interesting questions which arise when we talk about the topic of Gilicide. So we want to talk about one of them this week and maybe some other, uh, some of, uh, some other ones next week. The question is like this. this both situations we had of, of Gilly's side is where the information was given to you by the person involved. The Dayanim, they had a meeting confidentially. The person gives you information and then has to give you permission to pass it on. So you were taken into confidence and you were committed to secrecy, either by understanding that, that it's meant to be secret, or sometimes particularly a person tells you don't spread this. But what happens if you find out information on your own, by chance, which you know that the person probably doesn't want anybody to know, but he didn't tell you the information and he didn't let you know about the situation. You happen to find out on your own. You're very, you might be uh, either very um, good at that. <laughs> that might be something that you uh, have a talent for, finding out secret information, or you just happen to find out. I'll give you some, some couple of examples. One example, a person is getting engaged, right? The classic uh, secret. And it's still unofficial. And they, let's say, we'll talk about it in a moment, but let's say it's really unofficial. Actually, no one knows about it yet. And they don't want that information to get out yet. But you happen to find out how because you were in a store and overheard them making an order. For, for an engagement that's going to happen in a week, right? making a flower order. So you happen to overhear and you got that information. No one committed you to secrecy and no one even told it to you. You just found out the information by chance. Are you still obligated to keep that a secret? 
Another, okay, I'll give you another case. Someone's trying to buy a certain house. He put a bid on a certain house. And um, he doesn't want people to know that. It's in his best interest right now that no one should know that he's trying to buy that house or looking for another job and so on and so forth. He wants that to be a secret. And you happen to find out, not from him and not from the other people involved in the transaction, but from a maintenance man who was brought in to see, or to check out a repair. And he just says, oh, you know, I was just in that house checking out a repair for that person. I said, wow, that person was looking to buy that house. Very interesting. So you happen to find out information that a person is looking to buy a certain house. So he didn't tell you. You weren't committed to secrecy. He found out the information by chance. Do you have an obligation? Is there an isser of Gili's site? So some Svar maintain that this is still Osir. They quote from Sefer Pella Yayetz in the name of Chubas Hilchas Kitanis. It was written by the Lacha Mishnah. That even trying to find out a secret about someone is Osir. Right? That you can't go snooping around and Googling that person on the internet and interviewing different people in order to find out secret information. Even the act of trying to divine a person's secrets is also included in this Isser. Fascinating. So in other words, no one takes you into confidence, but this person has secrets. He has things that he doesn't want other people to know. And you just try to find them out. And certainly if you do find them out, they're still secret. And that itself is uncovering his secrets. And it's included in the sister. We have to re- respect the person's right to his privacy. And this is a very hot button topic these days. You know, a person's, uh, his, his information and his right to keep his information private. Um, the other Svarm, though, maintain that the Isser is only if you have been taken into confidence. So they say, if you haven't been taken into confidence, then, then it's not Osir. Now, I want, next week we're going to talk more about this, but I want to just clarify that. Obviously, just going around and um, wantonly putting other people's private information on display is the wrong thing to do. And I don't think that's a question. Right? You certainly are not allowed to do that. And it's, it's harming, it could be harming that person or embarrassing that person. So we don't really need the Isra of Gilead's side for that. But as we'll talk about more next week, it becomes a bigger question when there are people who might really want to know that information. And it might be actually important for them to hear that information. And if there is an Isra of Gilead's side, then it becomes a much stronger question. Do you have the right to share that information or not? And if it's not an Isra of Gilead's side, so then you're entitled to, to share that information. So that's really what we're talking about over here. If you know information, you found out something about someone and you weren't committed to secrecy, they didn't share the information with you and tell you, don't spread it. You just happened to find out. And now you know people who need to know that information. It's important for them to know that information. Are you allowed to share that information or not? So that's going to be a machlekis over here between these Paiskim, the Pelayites, and others, whether this is included in Gilead's site or not. But like I said, Sam, just to go and spread people's personal information I don't think you really need a Isser of Gilead for that to be Usser. That's going to be Usser simply. You're, you're damaging them. You're, you're embarrassing them sometimes and so on and so forth. Another interesting point, and it just demonstrates this point further, Rav Nissen Karel Zetzal, in the Sefer Chut Shani, writes that even, let's say, in the case of an engagement, right, which is supposed to be unofficial, and the, the, the family wants it to be unofficial, and, and people shouldn't t- talk about it and spread it. But as the nature of these things are, it goes around and people know, and, and, and a lot of people know already. He says, you still know how to tell other people. You're still not allowed to spread it further. It's still included in Gilead's site. 
Now, obviously, at some point, the family will give up and they'll say, okay, everybody knows already, so everybody knows already. And at that point, they won't be machbit anymore and they won't care if you tell other people because, yeah, you know, just it became unofficially official. But if it's not holding yet at that point or there's other kinds of things that people don't care, they just don't want you to spread it, so then you can't, even though there are many people spreading it, even though there's many people that know it, it's still included in the Isra of Gili side. So this is the same point, again, that Rav Nesim is just emphasizing, is that a person is entitled to his privacy. And we can't disturb a person's privacy, even if we just came to that information by chance, and we can't spread that information. But next week, we'll talk about when you have a very important reason to want to share this private piece of information, are there situations where it's permitted or not? Parshas Kairach, as we know, was a very sad story in the history of Klal Yisrael. It was the first full-blown machlaikas, uh, which kind of turned into a rebellion, started by Kairach, joined by Dasan and Aviram, joined by 250 Roshi Sanhedrois, 250 of the the finest, the finest of Klai Yisrael, the pride and joy of Klai Yisrael, the biggest Hamid HaChachamim, the, the Rosh Sanhedrois, the people that sat at the head of the Bate Dinim, the head of the, 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 the Sanhedrins who decided Tyra, who decided Halacha, the Gedele Hadar, they all joined Kairach, and they, they ganged up against Maish Rabbeinu. And we see in various different points in the parasha a fascinating truth, which is so important for us on every level of our interaction with other people, to the most basic interactions between a husband and wife, a person and their children, person and their parents, and all interactions you have, whether in business and greater and greater. What we see in the parsha, emphasized again and again, is that people can have a justification for their action. A person can think he's doing something for one reason, but that's not the reality. The reality is they're doing it for another reason totally. They're doing it for usually an emotional reason. To begin with Kairach himself, Rashi, right in the beginning of the parasha, by Vayikar Kairach, Rashi says, what influenced Kairach's decision? Why did he decide to take up, take up pick up this rebellion and, and war against Moshe Rabbeinu? Now you look at the psukim, he says, and he has very beautiful reasons why he's looking to argue with Moshe Rabbeinu. He says, what kind of business is this? We're all holy. He was making an argument for equality, but he was making an argument for equality in the most important thing in the world, spirituality. Everybody wants to become close to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So what, what, what Kairach was arguing was something very lofty and very holy. But Rashi says that that's, that's not what was going on here. That's not what his motivation was. He said his motivation was he had kina. He had kina. He was jealous. He was upset. What was he upset about? He was upset. Why did Kairach fight with Moshe Rabbeinu? 
was appointed the head, the Nasi of Shevet Levi. Moshe Rabbeinu appointed him the Nasi on Bnei Kahas. And Kairach said, that should have been me. According to the way it works in, in uh, fathers and children, the, the order, I should, have been that, I should have gotten that position and I didn't. Why didn't I get that position? Now, I'm going to battle, I'm going to try to dispute and discredit everything Moshe Rabbeinu says. Now, when Rashi says a thing like that, we understand that's not that, that was not a conscious thought. That was not a conscious thought. Obviously, Kairach was not a lawyer. Kairach was not someone that was, he was, he was a very, very great, 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 great person. And he was respected by these 250 Rashi Senadroyes, the greatest people in Kairach, respected him and listened to him and followed him. He was a very great person. But he was led astray by an internal emotion which he did chose not to recognize. And this is a very, very powerful point. And it's stressed again and again in the passion. There are emotions that we have, and those emotions really determine what our motivations are. And unless we're honest with ourselves, unless we really know what it is that's fueling us, what it really know, we really know what's getting us angry, unless we're willing to be brutally honest with ourselves and say it's not about Kulam Kedoshim, it's not about the Seicham Hashem, it's not about equality, and it's not about social justice. It's about something, someone insulted me. That's what it's really about. Or it's about something that I felt should be coming to me, and I didn't get it. If we're brutally honest with ourselves, if we allow ourselves to see that, so we, at least we can get to the first step. At least we could know. <laughs> we can know what's going on. And then we have the ability to try to overcome that. We have the ability to try to use our logic, our minds, to control our emotions. At the very least, we could know that we should seek objectivity, look for other people for advice, to help, to help us understand are we doing the right thing? Is this a real justification? Or is this just something tainted with uh, a negius, tainted with a personal vendetta? The truth is, a person's best option, usually first option, is to refer to his better half. A husband should speak to a wife, and a wife should speak to a husband. And Chazal say that, unfortunately, Kairach was compromised very seriously in this area. He was compromised. His wife didn't help him here. And his wife actually fueled the flames and fanned them even, even higher. And she actually spoke to that emotion that was raging inside him and caused it to flourish into something which perhaps it wouldn't have been otherwise. So he lost that integral option that every person has to seek objective viewpoint. He didn't have that. And another person in the parasha, Ayn ben Palas, he did. And his wife, if you look at what the, Pasik, the, the Rashi brings down from Chazal, that's what she, all she did. She gave him an objective viewpoint. She says, what are you getting involved here for? What do you have from this? Either Moshe Rabbein is going to be the leader or, or Kairach is going to be the leader. You don't have anything from this. And she just said, look, I'm going to talk to your emotion as well. Is this really about justice? Is this really about who's right and what's right and what's wrong? It's about COVID, and you're not getting any COVID out of it. So stay out of it. So he had an objective view that helped him, and Karach did not. So Karach fell. We see it again. 
Klal Yisrael followed Kairach. Why did Klal Yisrael follow Kairach? Why did they listen to him? So the Ramban says, and he says a, a frightening thing. He says Klal Yisrael, up till recently, recent history in that point in Chumash, if you would have tried to take up arms against Moshe Rabbeinu, they would have run you over with a steamroller. There was no way they were going to allow someone to take up against Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu took them out of Mitzrayim. Moshe Rabbeinu gave them the mud. Moshe Rabbeinu brought out the Be'er. Moshe Rabbeinu brought down the Tyre and Har Sinai. They recognized all that. Moshe Rabbeinu davened for them by the Egel. Moshe Rabbeinu saved them again and again and again. If anybody, he was the biggest rebel that they could possibly be. <laughs> if someone tried to badmouth the rebel, they, they would have stomped him out of existence. So what happened here? Why did it not happen? So the Ramban says, because something just happened. There was this Miraglim, last week's Parsha, Parsha Shalach. And the Miraglim, Hakla Yisrael got a very, very bitter decree from HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and he decreed that they're going to die in the Midbar, and they're not going to go into Eretz Yisrael. And Kalal Yisrael was upset. Why didn't Moshe Rabbeinu overturn that decree? Why didn't he daven for us? Now, Moshe Rabbeinu did daven for them. And Sefer Chidush HaLev explains this beautifully. Moshe Rabbeinu daven for them in last week's parasha. But if you look at the way, and particularly the Ramban himself explains, that he davened, but he didn't daven that they, the decree should be totally nullified. He does daven that they should be given time, which they were. They were given 40 years in the Midbar, so it wasn't that the whole generation just died out and then their children go into Israel. They were given 40 years, which gave them time to live, to do tshuva, to, to become fulfill their purpose in life. They just weren't going to go into Israel. So Meshavim accomplished that, but he didn't accomplish more than that. He didn't break the decree. And why not? Obviously, because he couldn't, and he knew he couldn't. So Klal Yisrael was angry at Moshe Rabbeinu, and he explains the Chidush HaLev that it wasn't necessarily logical. It didn't necessarily make sense. It, 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 perhaps if you would have sat down with them and argued it out with them, they would have agreed, you're right, there was nothing he could do. But it didn't make a difference, as often is the situation where you feel someone could have, he could have done more, right? And you sit down and you say, no, he couldn't. Have. But he could have done more. That was a feeling they had from Moshe Rabbeinu at this point. There was a resentment. And because of that, they were willing to accept what Kairach said. Now, what Kairach said had nothing to do with their issue, right? Their issue was Moshe Rabbeinu didn't down for them. So let's, let's tackle that issue. Let's take it head on. Let's sit down with Moshe Rabbeinu. Why didn't you down with us? And he'll talk and he'll explain and he'll hash it out. But no, it was there. That emotion was there. It was boiling inside them. And then when Kairach came with his whole new social justice issue, they jumped right onto the bandwagon. And that's the way it goes. We have an emotion circulating around inside us which we're not addressing. Maybe we don't have the courage to. Maybe we don't want to admit it. Maybe we don't have the, the nerve to go and take it up and bring it out into the open and, and, and come to the, the truth, which can be sometimes very embarrassing for ourselves or very difficult. We don't want to do that. So instead it stays there. And then we try to like, imagine it's not there, but then it colors everything that happens afterwards. And we think we're doing something with total justification for the best and holiest of reasons. And the Ramban tells us, and Rashi tells us, and Chazal tells us, no, 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 that's not what's going on here. And the bright person who has the right wife or the right objective opinion will tell them, listen, it's not what this is about. This is about cover. Just admit it. And then you're not getting that out of it. 
So please step aside. <laughs> Realize what the truth is. And the fascinating thing is, we think, how is it that the tzaddikim, the tremendous tzaddikim, how do they deal with these kind of things? How do they see to it that they don't fall into this trap? So we would like to think that they, they squash their emotions. They have such power of intellect. They have such amazing control that their emotions are just not a thing. Their emotions don't play a role. You see now like that in this parasha too. It says, Maishu Rabbeinu saw, he collapsed on his face. He fainted. Fell flat, flat on his face. Why did he fall flat on his face? There's two pshatim, maybe more. There's Yonisim and Azil, and there's what Rashi says. Yonisim and Azil says, you know why he fell flat on his face? He was humiliated. Why was he humiliated? Because there was a lot of things that they were saying, as is the nature of when a big rebellion, a machoikis begins. They started throwing all kinds of fake news at Moshe Rabbeinu. And they accused him of the most terrible sins that a person can possibly do. Each one of the 250 people warned their wives, don't seclude yourself with Moshe Rabbeinu, which means they were chayshed, they accused in their minds Moshe Rabbeinu of fooling around with their wives. The most disgusting and horrible and humiliating thing they did this publicly. And Moshe Rabbeinu was so overcome by embarrassment, he fell flat away. And again, the Sefer Chedush HaLevi points out, he says, have you ever collapsed because of an emotion? Have you ever fell flat on your face? <laughs> because you're so angry, so embarrassed. So, I mean, we've gotten embarrassed, all of us in our lifetimes, maybe some serious embarrassments. We've had terrible news, Lailainu. Have we fallen flat on our face? We, we generally not. I speak for myself. It's not something that typically happens. He says, Moshe Rabbeinu and Sadiqim, he said, their emotions are powerful, larger than life. So much so that when Moshe Rabbeinu becomes overcome by an emotion, it wipes him out. And he allowed it to happen because he wanted to demonstrate to Klai Yisrael what they just did. And the Ramban here points out, and here you see the contrast. It says, Moshe fell on his face. Why not Aaron? Why didn't Aaron fall on his face? So the Ramban says that Aaron should have fallen on his face too. But Aaron, he made a calculation here. He says, you know, this whole thing is really about me. Because that's what they want. Kairach wants my position. He wants to be the Kain Gadol. That's what all these 250 Russians in Hadrais wanted. They wanted to be the Kayan Gadol. They took the Torahs. They tried to be Maktirid. They, they want my position. I, it, it's a kind of a conflict of interest here. I can't go and speak about how it's from HaKadosh Baruch Hu and it's right. It's talking about me. It's just not appropriate. I can't be the one to fight this fight. So he held himself like a stone. He didn't want to get involved at all. And he didn't allow any emotion to affect him. So you hear, see here, there's two tremendous tzaddikim, and what we see is both aspects. Tzaddikim have emotions to a level that are beyond our ability to even comprehend. 
and then they have a control over that emotion to a level that we can't comprehend. And it all begins with the honesty of knowing what's really fueling us. What really is our motivation? What's behind this? Is it our own personal covet? Have we been insulted? Have we been slighted? Is it something that we stand to gain? Is it an agius? Is there something that we have our, you know, our own uh, piece of the action that we want? And it, 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 it can be very embarrassing for us to admit that even to ourselves in our heads. And therefore we won't want to do that. And that'll cause us to come up with all these justifications to make ourselves noble, to make ourselves correct, to make ourselves righteous. And the beginning is with that honesty. And once we recognize it, once we acknowledge it, then we can deal with it. And then you can have the godless on different levels of overcoming it. You can seek help, help people. Help, people can help you. They can offer objectivity. People can help you recognize what's right and what's wrong. Once you come to the realization, what's really the issue here? You can address the emotion. You can bring it out to the forefront. You can take it up with the person that you're having an issue with about the real issue, not the fake one. There are so many options that are open if we're honest. And from there, there's so much levels of growth. When we're honest with the emotion, then we have the ability to address it and choose to, over, to, to be bigger than that, choose to be greater than that. We can only do that if we acknowledge it. We can only do that if we know what it is. We can only do that if we're willing to live with who we are, willing to be okay with the fact that we have that emotion. And then we can choose, but I'm not going to let it rule over me. Sadiqim had tremendous emotion. If Moshe Rabbeinu got angry, he got angry to a level that's beyond our ability. He made volcanoes explode, but he controlled it. He had the same ability to control it with a force that's beyond our comprehension. Both things are Kaddish. Both things are holy. Every emotion that Kaddish Baruch Hu put within us is tremendously important in Avaita Hashem. There's a fascinating Gemara in, in Brachas. A very sad Gemara, but the Gemara, the, the, the Revelia Meir Blach, I believe it was, with other Talzers also brought out this point. Le'elenu, when a person loses a father, and as a result of his father passing away, he also gets a, a large inheritance. So the Gemara says, you make a bracha, Baruch Dayan Hamas on the loss, and you also make a bracha of Atayba Metiv on the inheritance. And the Talzers, the, the, the they explain that these are two seemingly very conflicting emotions. But the Torah requires a Jew to be able to channel both in the right way. Dying Emes is because you're sad. Taiva Metiv is because something could happen to you. Acknowledge it. Recognize it. It's not inappropriate to have that emotion. It's there. Utilize it. Utilize it the right way. And that, more than anything else, is a very relevant message that we can take home with us in so many interactions that we go through every day on a daily basis. May HaKadosh Baruch Hu grant us the wisdom, the clarity, and the seichel 
to be able to recognize that there's an issue, to be able to seek out help and to find good help. Find someone who won't flame it into a greater fire, but rather they'll help you be objective and help you see the truth. And may HaKadosh help, uh, help us grow and grow in the position that He gives us and in the Nisyanis that He's put us into and successfully achieve greatness in Avedis Hashem in all aspects of, of Tikkun Hamidus and personal growth. Have a good night and a wonderful Shabbos.